Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is a great joy to be with you. Another Thursday evening, an evening where we take up your questions. We call this Special Topic Thursday because really, I don't know from one Thursday to the next what I'm going to be talking about unless you ask me a question. So as I get questions from week to week, I do go through them and come to decide, uh, make that executive decision on what I'm going to talk about, usually early on in the week. And I have to say, I I had something planned for this evening, but that changed late yesterday evening when someone pulled me aside and said, hey, Joe, what's the deal with uh, women priesthood? Why doesn't the Catholic Church just ordain uh, women? And so this is going to be the question we take up this evening. Certainly, I think this is a question that A lot of us ask, especially outside the Catholic Church, why do you as a church not ordain women? It just doesn't make sense. From where we stand, you are suffering from a vocation crisis. Certainly that would help that. Um, And so, yeah, this is what we are going to take up this evening, and we will do so with the help of one George Weigel. I'm going to be drawing a little bit this evening from his book, The Truth of Catholicism, where he engages the question, as well as a little bit from... uh, Pope Francis, and uh, Pope John Paul II. Now, as it relates to the vocation crisis, before we jump into the question about women ordination, let me first say that for those of you who are in a diocese where there are many priests retiring and there are not priests being ordained, certainly from where you stand you see a vocation crisis, and and we need to be praying for more priests for sure. Let me tell you something. uh, Where there are dioceses in this country that are praying for vocations, where there are dioceses that are devoting time to evangelization and the renewal of seminary, you see those dioceses thriving in vocations. So what I would suggest to you is that in the end, our vocation crisis, or at least the perception of our vocation crisis, isn't because of this doctrine or that doctrine. It really has nothing to do with that, in as much as it has to do with we need to be doing more in the realm of evangelization and catechesis for the priesthood, and also we need to be praying more. Incidentally, my friends, when you go into the diocese, dioceses like Ann Arbor, Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, Denver, and these other dioceses where I'm hearing there's been an explosion of vocations, you see those dioceses devoting a great deal of time, just not renewing the parish life, but doing so through adoration. I think if you were to ask me, what is the one common thread that is bringing about a renewal in vocations? It is prayer, and most especially prayer for vocations where there are adoration chapels. When you go before the Blessed Sacrament, when you go before Jesus asking Him to renew your parish and and your diocese, invocations, he's going to respond because this is what he promises, right? What does he say? Lo, I am with you always. And it's really, really important to uh, see this for what it is. I have 
um, begun to do some work with uh, different dioceses in the area of discernment. And so I see the statistics. I see the very raw statistics. And I'm, I'm going to tell you what I see is that, yes, some dioceses are struggling for sure, but other dioceses are not. If they have a problem, it's because they have too many seminarians and not enough room, you know, which isn't really a problem per se, but at least that's the perception. All right. All of that being said, let us take up this question about women and, and ordination. George Weigel, in his opening reflection, says this, and I absolutely love this of Cardinal George. Cardinal Francis George of Chicago, who of course um, has passed away, is frequently asked why the church doesn't ordain women to the ministerial priesthood. A former teacher and a man of constant conversation, the Cardinal usually responds, you tell me what you think a priest is, and we'll take it from there. Now, you tell me what you think a priest is, and we'll take it from there. You see, my friends, the cardinal there, I think, gets to the heart of it. Because when you start talking about what the priesthood is, often there's just a misunderstanding of its very nature, huh? So the answer the cardinal would often then get into is almost always a what from uh, the lay vantage point, but a priest who is someone who just does certain things. And my friends, if that is what a priest is, then yeah, sure. I mean, it seems unfair. And one can even say unjust to ordain only men to the priesthood, if that is your understanding. And here, George Weigel asks, I think, a very important question. Would the entire question look different if it were viewed through the prism of the sacramental imagination? I mean, suppose a priest is not a set of functions, but an icon. Huh? Oh, by the way, when Pope Francis in Joy of the Gospel was talking about why women will never be ordained priests, listen to what he said. The reservation of the priesthood to males as a sign of Christ the spouse who gives himself in the Eucharist is not a question open to discussion. Did you hear what Pope Francis just said? A lot of people are under the impression that Pope Francis endorses women ordination. He doesn't. And in point of fact, he has said on more than one occasion, it is just something that cannot change. Why? Because, well, what he just said there, he speaks to the significance of the priest being a sign of Christ and as such, what but an icon, right? The idea that the priesthood is essentially functional in many ways, and this is really what uh, George Weigel gets into, is an unhappy byproduct of centuries of uh, legalization and bureaucracy in the Catholic Church. There's, there's no question that that exists. The net result of which, of course, is this kind of clerical caste system. But we can certainly say that uh, starting with the Vatican Council, Vatican II, and certainly with the papacy of John Paul II, the Church has been trying to remedy this kind of deformation. At the Vatican Council, the Church really reminded the world, there is only one high priest, Jesus Christ, in whose unique priesthood every Christian shares in by virtue of baptism. The ordained ministerial priesthood is not a set of functions within this common priesthood that we all share in. No. Nor does the ordained priest represent the priestly community made up of all Christians the way, say, maybe 
a member of Congress represents a district. I think that's another common misunderstanding. The priest does not stand in for the community, huh? Like the congressman would stand in for a district. In the Catholic view of things, my friends, the ordained priest is an icon of Christ who is the one high priest. Yes, he is an ordinary man. Every ordained priest is an ordinary man who, by the grace of holy orders, becomes an extraordinary symbol in the truest sense of the word, right? Extraordinary by virtue of the grace of God. An extraordinary representation, representation, right, of Christ's priestly presence to his people. Incidentally, my friends, this has a lot to do also with why priests don't marry. The other night I was out with Father Mike Ritter. For those of you who are faithful listeners to Seeds of Truth, you know that each and every Wednesday we take up a movie and we kind of reflect with it, engage its, its themes that bring light to our experiences of faith, that we might better understand our faith and the revelation of faith. So Father Mike and I went out to the movies, uh, as well as uh, Deacon Paul Saban. But afterwards, Father Mike and I were talking, and we had the discussion. I am going home to my wife to be at the service of my wife, to be at the disposal of my wife, to give myself to my wife. And I am going home to four children, to be at the service of my four children, to be at the disposal of my four children, to be present to my four children. Father Mike doesn't go home to anyone. But because of that, at the same time, he is always at the disposal to everyone, right? Because he is a spiritual father. And oh, by the way, St. <laughs> Paul reaffirms that there is such a thing as spiritual fatherhood because he calls himself a spiritual father. So Father Mike is a spiritual father, and as such, he can be at the disposal of multiple families. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holcraft family can't be at the disposal of others because we do our best to, to do that and to be that. But my point is simply this. Father Mike is available to be many things to many people because of the uniqueness of his vocation. And I think many priests would, would echo the importance of that. So, for all of that, we are made to see, really getting to the heart of the question, that the ordained priesthood exists not as a caste for its own sake, but for the service of the common priesthood of all the people of God. This is why I speak to Father Mike Ritter here, and any priest out there, for that matter. And again, this is one of the reasons that the Catholic West values celibacy uh, so highly. Celibacy chosen for the sake of the kingdom of God, in which all will live in a communion of perfect giving and receptivity, is a what? What did uh, Pope Francis say? A powerful sign to the entire church of every Christian's destiny. The ordained priest, as an icon of Christ the priest, lifts up and ennobles the common priesthood of all God's people, enabling the community to worship the truth. And as John Paul II would want us to see it, speak the truth and, 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 and serve in truth. JP too has insisted time and time again that the ministerial priesthood is not a career and it is not about power. It is about service. It is about service. 
St. John Paul II once said that the New Testament witness and the constant tradition of the church reminds us that the ministerial priesthood cannot be understood in sociological or political categories. I think that really gets underneath the question, huh? We think in sociological terms, if not strictly political terms, and it just causes confusion. JP2 closes the priesthood of holy orders must be understood theologically as one form of service in and for the church. Pope Francis also said, enjoy the gospel. Yes, the priesthood can prove especially divisive if sacramental power is too closely identified with power in general. If it is all about power and there's no sacramental imagination, well, therein lies the problem. What did JP2 say? It's about power. It's about service. So the priesthood and the Catholic view of things cannot be grasped in terms of rights. And the issue of the possibility or possible ordination of women to the priesthood cannot be understood then as a question of justice. Why? Because no one has a right to be a priest. And no man's claim to a priestly vocation is ever taken by the church at face value, right? Priestly vocations are tested through a lengthy period of preparation. As many of you know, uh, I discerned the priesthood for over two years. I joined the Franciscan TORs. I even made simple vows. It was part of the process of my discernment. And through good spiritual direction, I came to understand that I simply was not called to the priesthood, but, but called to marriage. And I am forever grateful for that time for sure. It helped me to become a better man by the grace of God. But it was just a matter of discernment. There is a lengthy process in play. At the very least, five, six years, and at the most, ten years. It just takes time. I know many men who discerned that they weren't called for a time, lived in the world, single, and then came back ten years later. Why? Because that's what God's plan was for them. huh? And yes, some men go in uh, without even their bachelor's degree. They get their bachelor's degree, then they go to major seminary, and they're ordained at 25 years old, and they're ready to go at the service of the church. Do they have still room to grow? Of course they do, because we always have room to grow. But please, don't make the mistake to see this as a right. And again, this is part of the problem, I think, in how we have been made to think politically. Everyone has their right. (laughs) The priesthood comes to us from something and someone outside of us, namely God. The church calls men to the priesthood. No one from the Pope to the most humble rule pastor has called himself to be a priest as a matter of his own empowerment. Remember that salient truth that has come to us through the years, that God does not call the qualified, but qualifies the call, right? All we have to do is look at the 12, that motley crew of men. Now, you could probably make the case that none of those men, minus Judas, ironically enough, would have been uh, priestly men, yet God called them, right? God's the one that calls. So we also have to be careful about how we think about this within the context of just, what is just, and, and, and our rights, huh? Now here, George Weigel really goes deep into this point. He says, 
nor can we understand justice in the church by strict comparison to justice in society. The personal equality of all the people of the church by reason of their being created in the image of God and their spiritual equality because of their baptism exists alongside a necessary difference or inequality of spiritual gifts. Those differences or inequalities are of God's doing, and we should not wish to be otherwise. I think that is so important. Brothers and sisters, unless some were given the gift of, say, prophetic insight, how would the rest of us be challenged to see things as they really are? Unless others were given the gift of spiritual direction, who would the rest of us look to for guidance on our pilgrimage through life? You see, the equality of all before the law is a bedrock principle of a just civil society. We have talked a great deal over recent months about the variety of gifts, right? The variety of gifts given by the same Holy Spirit, the, the, the different kinds of service rendered to the same Lord, and the many works in which, in which God is working, these are the bedrock realities of the church, which is a communion of believers, right? Not a, a, a nation state or any other kind of sociological or political category. Each and every one of us has a very distinct and particular gift, and we have to enter into what that is that we might come to understand how we are called to give glory to God as sons and daughters of the one true God, giving glory to just not the body of Christ, but the, the mystical body of Christ. Now, all of that being said, we have to address another question within that larger question about the ordination of women. Because for John Paul II, there is certainly a body language to the priesthood. In the Catholic sacramental imagination, there is what we call the sacramentality of the body. And this is just the, the beautiful language of St. John Paul II. What is the sacramentality of the body? Well, how what you see on the outside speaks to a much deeper interior reality. On face value, uh, we can discern that there is a sacramentality to the body. I've talked about this before. How do you know when I am sad? Right? I can hold it in up to a point, but at some point you are going to see tears, right? How do you know that I am happy or joy-filled? Well, laughter, huh? And to, and to some degree, maybe I'm, I'm crying tears of joy. Tears can go both ways, I suppose. What about embarrassment? What kind of sacrament, if you will, do you see when I am embarrassed but, but red cheeks, Okay. So there is a sacramentality to our bodies that lends itself to a kind of sacramental imagination. And it deals again with body language. In the Catholic Church, maleness and femaleness are neither accidents of evolutionary biology, nor are they uh, social, um, cultural constructs. They are, that is, maleness and femaleness icons pointing to deeper truths about the nature of reality and the nature of God himself. The equality of men and women made in the image and likeness of God and redeemed by Christ does not mean, my friends, that men and women are interchangeable as icons of God's presence to the world. 
This insistence on taking seriously our sexual, there's a word here used by George Weigel, embodiedness, our our distinctive maleness and and femaleness, if, if you will, has always been at the root of the church's sexual ethic. And certainly, it is also involved in the question of the priesthood. Now, to some degree, if we're going to answer this question, as John Paul II reminded us, there is going to be some theology there. So stay with me as we get into some of this theology, especially as it comes to us from Ephesians 5. Because according to the ancient tradition of the church, going back to St. Paul and the first generations of Christian believers and Christian thinkers, Christ's relationship to the church is what? Spousal. That is to say, as Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 reminds us explicitly, Christ loves the church. This is not me. This is Paul, right? St. Paul. Christ loves the church as a husband loves a wife. That spousal giving in love is most thoroughly represented when, as the Catechism speaks to it in the Eucharist at Mass, when the priest, acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, and as an icon of Christ, makes Christ's gift of himself present through the consecration of bread and wine, which of course ultimately becomes Christ's body and blood. And how does all of this take place, by the way? Going back all the way to Jesus himself, does not Jesus confer his very power upon the apostles and then Do not those apostles confer their power upon subsequent apostles, which we, of course, know as bishops? Why do we see St. Paul laying his hands on Timothy? Because he's conferring the very power that Jesus conferred upon him, which renders itself most profoundly in the form of what? What have we been talking about? But service, that power which in the Greek is uh, explosive, like an explosive energy, huh? So, very important to grasp the significance of Ephesians 5.25. Now, I know some of this is difficult, but it is really worth spending time with. That the, the iconography of Christ's spousal gift of self to his church most intensely embodied in his sacramental giving of himself in the Eucharist, requires, in the Catholic view of things, a priest who can, can, like an icon, represent Christ in his male donation of himself to his bride, the church. And again, George Weigel reiterates this, none of this is easy to engage, let alone grasp, especially as George Weigel explicitly says here, in a culture that treats sexual differentiation as accidental and not sacramental. Still, in the end, my friends, the truth of the matter is that the Catholic tradition of ordaining only men to the priesthood is an expression of the Catholic sacramental imagination. It is not a matter of uh, misogyny. It is not a question of rights. It is not a question of power. It is not a question of justice. It is not a question of politics. It is not not a question of social construct. It is a question of sacramentality. (laughs) George Weigel has another great line here. You know, the extraordinary 
that lies just on the far side of the ordinary is made present through the things of this world, weak and adequate as they may be, as weak and adequate as those men called to the priesthood would say they undoubtedly are. I love that. You know, Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 8, that God's ways are not our ways. And certainly this, we could say, is abundantly clear and abundantly true of the Catholic sacramental imagination. My dear friends, I know we have touched upon a lot of things here this evening. What I would really encourage you to do is just sink yourself deep into the history of the church. You know, we as Catholics do not teach in the abstract. That is to say, what we teach, you know, poof, just didn't appear one day. No, everything we teach is rooted in sacred scripture and certainly what has been handed on through the years. And that this is very important. Now, I imagine as I answer one question, you have many more questions, so please don't hesitate to send me your questions. You can do that by going to my website at joholcraft.org, or you can just email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.